0: I wake to a world with more questions than answers, where dissonant voices ignite division, my heart will stand firm in this decision. I choose thankful. Though I walk through a landscape that is uncharted and foreign, where the once familiar seems lost and forgotten, I will remember that nothing is unexpected to my Father in heaven, and I choose thankful. Thankful. Though I live each day uncertain of tomorrow, I will accept that tomorrow was never certain and cherish every chance to witness the wonder of creation. I choose thankful. I choose faith in what is unseen, hope for a future beyond the adversity, love spoken despite animosity. I choose to believe. though the struggles I face may be painful, though it sometimes seems impossible, though I fall a thousand times covered in the dust of failure, I am able to rise. Not because I am strong, not because life is perfect, but because in all circumstances Jesus lives. When this world stands perplexed and demands I give a reason for the hope that I have, I can only say that in Jesus' name, I choose thankful. It's not a simple choice, it's not an easy choice, but it is the only choice that brings calm in the storm. Not by my power, but through the strength of Christ alone. I choose thankful.
1: Well, I trust that you uh, are going to choose thankful this week. I gave an assignment last week when we said we're going to dive into this subject of choosing thankfulness during the week of uh, or the weeks around Thanksgiving. Did you do your homework? Do you remember what your homework is? So I don't know about you, but a lot of times uh, I have dreams that I forgot my homework still. And I've been out of school for quite a while. But the homework that we mentioned last week had to do with choosing thankful. 2020 has been a very interesting year. And as an interesting year, um, we said that there are different things that cause us not to be thankful. Unresolved conflict, unmet expectations, and unvalued blessings. And so your homework was to pull up a bench, sit down in some kind of nice surround, uh, surrounding, and choose Thankful by coming up with a list of those things that you have deep gratitude for. Both the life groups I'm a part of, our Tuesday night group and our men's group on Saturday morning, we took the opportunity to list some of those things we're grateful for. A discipline. So if you didn't get your homework done, I'll give you an extension. You can have another week. And uh, but you'll need to turn it in, not to me, but to turn it into God and uh, sit down. We did something interesting yesterday uh, with men's group. We actually put an empty chair in the middle of our circle and we said Jesus is sitting there. Now you tell Jesus what you're thankful for, because a lot of times like, well, I told my friend or this. No, personalize it. What are you thankful for amidst all the other things that might be going on? Do not be a grumble leader to yourself or to others, as we talked about last week. And the material for grumble leading is unresolved conflict, unmet expectations, and unvalued blessings. So push back, past against that, and do what we said last week, which is in Philippians four eight. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, actually. You need to participate in this. This is a class participation thing. You can't be falling into spectator mode, whether you're sort of inside the overhead bay doors or outside here. Uh, some of you, I am so sorry you're sitting in the sun. You have permission to move because it can get hot a little bit. But um, let's read this together. Really? Ready? You good? Philippians 4.8. Here we go. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, Whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. It's a discipline of our mind. It's a discipline of our heart. I remember one of the first times I had the opportunity to speak. uh, I think it might have been the first opportunity I had to speak when I was on staff at the first church I was hired at. And um, I was college and career age pastor. In other words, I spent time, um, they paid me to spend time hanging out on college campuses and talking to people about uh, having a relationship with Christ, uh, Christian universities mostly. And I told the lead pastor, I said, if you'll let me speak on a Sunday morning, I think I can fill up the room. Now, it wasn't because I thought that I was so great as much as I knew that the relational connection was important. And so I went recruiting, and he gave me the opportunity, and uh, they had just, I think, recently added on uh, a new wing of the auditorium, and it could probably seat about 1,000 people, and I thought we could get 1,000 people there, and I think we came really close to doing that. I remember when um, I was given that opportunity, I was so fired up. To challenge people not to get caught up in what was happening in the world, but to stay true to Christ and to stay true to the cross of Christ and the work that He can do. Because it's very easy in any church to get caught up in the things of the world and not stay true to the gospel. It's very easy for us in our personal life to just sort of go with the flow of the world rather than having that deep conviction of what it means to be a sold-out follower of Jesus Christ. And so I entitled the message that day. I remember it very clearly because I thought it was sort of cute. I said, the cross in the wake of modernity. The cross in the wake of modernity. In other words, the wake that's behind a boat. What happens to the cross? What's happening today? Are we watering down the gospel? That kind of thing. And I was addressing some of the things we actually addressed in the last series, which had to do with uh, the secularizing of the world and that kind of thing. And so uh, I think it went fairly well. We had a great group. Filled it up, had a few words of affirmation afterwards. But one of the reasons I remember to this day is because I said a phrase that I th- thought sort of had a good, unique twist to call people out a little bit. But I suppose the phrase could have sounded arrogant. But as a young pastor, when I said this phrase, I meant it, and there's value in this phrase without question. But I also realize now, after all these years, I was quite naive. I was naive with what happens in life and the challenges and the struggles that can so easily come. And the phrase was this. I struggle with Christians who struggle. I struggle with Christians who struggle. And that's true if we don't really know the full life we have in Christ and who we are in Him, and our identity in Him, and what He's done for us, not only in the forgiveness of our sins, but the empowering of our life. But at that time, I said, I struggle with Christians who struggle. We talked about it last week, a little bit of that Eeyore complex of, oh no, things are going bad in my life. What am I going to do? But here's what I've learned through the years now that I've lived not only with Jesus, but I've lived to encounter the challenges. Life is hard. Life is hard, and there are going to be challenges that hit you and I that make it really, really hard to choose thankful. And we are insensitive to others if we do not realize that others may be in a place that we've never been before, or others may be in a place that we can remember when we were having a hard time. But if you're given an assignment to sit down in a beautiful place on a bench and choose thankful and to come up with a list of things of gratitude, it's not easy sometimes. Because you're in pain, you're in challenge. And so what I'd like to do today is to look at a psalm and a story that helps address those who are in a painful place. Maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you have a friend. Maybe you have a family member that you're going to be around over Thanksgiving and you really need to sensitize your heart to the place that they're at. I struggle with Christians who struggle. I do because I want people to be alive in Christ and to His mission. And I don't always think that gets portrayed in our discipleship. But I also empathize with Christians who struggle. I've been there. I've had some seasons since I spoke in that large auditorium as a young pastor. Where are you at today? So, we're going to look at this song. We're going to look at a story briefly and then just with some challenge. It can sort of be like, wow, I, uh, th- that last week's message was so inspiring, encouraging, and then you sort of drop down into this for this week of Thanksgiving. Well, you hang with me? Uh, the first part of this in the psalm is sort of tough news, challenging news. But as God works through our lives and the story that we're going to talk about in Scripture, you can find a place of optimistic strength even though you're in pain or your friend's in pain or a family member is having a tough time. So with that, what I'd like you to do is open your Scriptures if you have them. And we are going to go to Psalm 88. Psalm 88. And in Psalm 88, we have a writer who is crying out in a lot of pain. Psalm 88 says this, Lord, you are the God who saves me. Day and night I cry out to you. May my prayer come before you. Turn your ear to my cry. I am overwhelmed with troubles and my life draws near to death. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am like one without strength. I am set apart with the dead, like the slain who lie in the grave whom you remember no more, who are cut off from your care. You have put me in the lowest pit. In the darkest depths, your wrath lies heavily on me and you have overwhelmed me with all your waves. You have taken from me my closest friends and have made me repulsive to them. I am confined and cannot escape. My eyes are dim with grief. I call to you, Lord, every day. I spread out my hands to you. Do you show your wonders to the dead? Do their spirits rise up and praise you? Is your love declared in the grave? Your faithfulness in destruction? Are your wonders known in the place of darkness or your righteous deeds in the land of oblivion? But I cry to you. I cry to you for help. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. Why, Lord, do you reject me and hide your face from me? From my youth, I have suffered and been close to death. I have borne your tears and am in despair. Your wrath has swept over me. Your tears have destroyed me. All day long they surround me like a flood, they have completely engulfed me. You have taken from me friend and neighbor. Darkness is my closest friend. Now, how y'all feeling this morning? That's pretty uh, heavy. That's sort of deep. Why in the world would the pastor choose to speak on that on Thanksgiving week? I tell you why. Because the faith that you and I carry if we're Christ followers today, or the faith that maybe you're looking into if you're a seeker here today, is a real faith. And a real faith is going to deal with the good side and the good times as well as the raw times and the dark times. Darkness. Darkness is my closest friend. You know, in the Hebrew, it actually uh, puts the word darkness at the end. And this writer of this psalm, this prayer, as he's crying out, he says, hey, he says, my closest friend is darkness. Darkness is darkness. Psalm 88 and Psalm 39 are two psalms of the 150 psalms that do not have any encouraging really words in them. Other psalms you'll find where people will um, cry out to God, David and others, and they they will be raw. But then there's always the word of hope that comes back in. The Lord sustains me or the Lord will lead me into a land of, of uh, blessing. But in Psalm 88, as well as Psalm 39, the Psalmtress does not have any hope in it. This guy's down. He is not doing well. He is struggling. And he's struggling to such a place that he is fearful of even his own death. And that's why he talks about it that way. We don't know what's happened. And sometimes that's good when we read scriptures because then we sort of apply it to ourselves a little bit more because it's a bit generic. But something has happened where he is in a dire situation. And he's crying out to God, but he's being real. You and I need to know this, that we have a real faith. I will uh, quote something from the great literary art, Princess of the Bride. (laughs) The man in black uh, says, Life is pain, Highness. Anyone who says differently is selling something. You remember that phrase? Well, here's the reality. Christianity is not selling you something. That may be true in a lot of salesmanship kind of thing. Oh, here, here's the deal. No. Life is pain. And scriptures and those who seek to be followers of God deal with pain. But how do they deal with the pain? And where do you go with the pain? There's something that's happening with the writer of this psalm in that he has both Outward pain and inward pain. Now, you can get along in life fairly well if you deal with one or the other. But if you've got both going on, you've got challenges. Outward pain can be circumstances, what's happening, but inside you've got a, a core of strength and a peace and some things you know you're confident in. But if you lose the interior life to despair at the same time that despair is happening in your circumstances, well, friends all kind of Hades breaks loose, right? There are challenges that overwhelm us and put us in the pit. And here he is, crying out in his realness to God, where are you? Darkness is a better friend than you are. If you look at Psalm 39, it says, could you just leave me alone, God, for a while so I can get some kind of relief? In that kind of situation, we find this writer. But our Christian faith has never held back from the reality that there's going to be tough times. Jesus himself said this in John 16, words before he was going to the cross and giving instructions to his disciples. He says, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And then he says this in John 15:20. Remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. So what do you do with a psalm that's not going anywhere? As far as giving some hope. do You just sort of write it off. Let's not read it. Let's not think about meditating on it. Pastor, don't be preaching on that. There's something that is really encouraging, actually, about this kind of psalm being left in God's Word. Commentator Derek Kidner says this, The very presence of these prayers in Scripture is a witness to God's understanding. God knows how men speak when they are desperate. God knows how men speak. In other words, you're not hiding anything from God. God's a real God. You're a real person. He's created you. Tough times happen. Maybe the external and the internal have both imploded. And there's a sense of despair and you're calling out in desperation. God says, voice it. Bring it on. Don't hide it. Don't put the Jesus face on and show up in the outback lot to pretend everything's going well. You can come. You can be real. And because this psalm is there, in a strange way, it's encouraging. Because God understands and he left it there. Don't you think this is bad PR for God? This is bad press. What can, this guy, and this person saved, he, he, he leads off, you know, in the psalm and says, Lord, you are the God who saves me day and night. I cry out to you. So it is someone who sought God, who lives with God, but then he's crying out in this place. If I was putting together my book, I think I might want to hide that. But God says, no. Let it rip. And you can take courage because of these kinds of psalms that you do not live in a make-believe world. God is not selling you something. Life can be painful. And whether you're in that place or a friend or family member's in that place, we do not need to run from God. So Christian... Dark times can come in your life and those dark times can sometimes last a long time. But in the midst of that darkness, you can choose thankful. If for any reason else, God understands and is willing to listen to your pain and your despair in the darkness. He doesn't say, I don't want to hear any of that, man. Just give me the good stuff. No. He knows about your life and he knows what's going on. And you can go to him as a trusted, true friend. I uh, don't know about you, but when I'm in these kinds of places of darkness or despair, and I've definitely not experienced the depth and darkness of despair as Maybe some of you have, or I know many others have, who have walked with God. What I want to know is not the easy answer or the quick fix. I want to know something of depth. And so, Christian, the first truth in one sense is that darkness will come, and sometimes it will last a long time, but I want to encourage you about this, that it's in the darkness that you can find God's grace. In fact, some of the deepest, Richest lessons about who God is are found in the dark times. Psalm twenty-three: Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for Thou art with me. Those valley experiences, when you sense the world coming in around you and all that there is in darkness, are experiences where you can discover the grace of God in amazing ways, you know the psalmist here he actually you know it's it's good that he's not running from God right he's crying out to God that that means a lot right there so he's speaking to God he's not running from God he's crying out to God but um, for some of the value and what he sort of gets a little accusatory here don't you think he's like complaining to God because he's wanting to do great things you have taken me from my closest friends and made me repulsive to them. I, can, I am confined and cannot escape. My eyes are dim with grief. I call to you, Lord, every day. I spread out my hands to you. Do you show your wonders to the dead? It's like, really? Have you ever had somebody like step up and speak into somebody's life that's in authority and you're going like, oh, I can't believe they said that. Did he really just say that? He he stood up and he looked at God and he said, do you show wonders to the dead? Do your spirits rise up and praise you? Is your love declared in the grave, your faithfulness and destruction? If you're at that place, you're okay. If you're at the place running from God and you're not speaking and praying hard things to Him, That, to me, is worse darkness. So as you wrestle with the tough times, as you wrestle with the darkness, whether external, internal, both, you're moving through this. Yes, I know I need to choose thankful. I'm I'm very alive today, but sometimes we don't even want our life, and that's why suicide is so prominent with people. They get to a place that says, I just need this life to be over, not realizing that just doesn't make any sense when you really think about it. No life and life cannot be equated But the pain is so rich. It's so deep. I've got to get away from this. But if you're in that pain, then what you do to choose thankful is you turn your face toward God to discover his grace and his mercy and his strength somehow in it. And thus, I want you to turn to the story that you might be familiar with. It's the story of Job. The story of Job. Do you remember this story? If you don't have this story, This is I, I'm cleaning out my garage right now, trying to get some things organized, and I came across my textbook, Argument from the Book of Job. I had a whole semester course in the Book of Job. How do you think that goes? That's sort of heavy. The story of Job, if you don't know it, I'm actually going to take some time uh, to read part of it. Some of the times I wonder why I read Scripture so much. Uh, last week I read a whole chapter and it was like, "That's you can't you just sort of sum it up and move from there." Well, if you want to know, I have this ongoing rising conviction within me that we don't spend a lot of time in the Word really when we're out during the week. So you might as well sit here and listen to me read one chapter. No, that was a little slight, little little nudge there, right? Job, it says in this story, probably the most ancient book that was written, believed that Job lived during the time of Abraham. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. It's not Job. Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters. He had ten kids. And he... Owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the peoples of the East. Now, if you were to modernize that today, they might rip off the, the stock portfolio or properties or whatever it might own. Back then, livestock was a pretty significant thing, and he had a lot of land and a lot of employees. Verse 4, his sons used to hold feasts in their homes on their birthdays, and they would invite three sisters Uh, to eat and drink with them. When a period of feasting had run its course, Job would make arrangements for them to be purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. (laughs) Isn't that interesting? Think about that. Here's the parent that gets up and uh, thinks about their children and uh, decides to offer a sacrifice because they're fearful that children had sinned that day and cursed God in their heart. Greatest man among all the peoples of the East. Righteous man, upright man, prosperous man, godly man. One day the angel came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, "'Where have you come from?' Now, I find this interesting in this story. We don't fully know the spiritual realm, but somehow Lucifer, the fallen angel, archangel, whose name's Satan, who roams on this earth, he's allowed presence into God's presence. And God asks him, what you been doing? What you been doing? You just sort of, uh, you know, hold accountability here. He says, I've been roaming back and forth on the earth. Oh, that's interesting. You know, Satan's not been thrown into what Scripture says is the lake of fire yet. So do you think he's still roaming? He's still roaming. Peter said that, that he roams like a, a roaring lion, seeking to devour people. So here God catches him. Hey, what you doing? I'm roaming back and forth on the earth. Satan answered, roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth. Then the Lord said to Satan, hey, hey, hey. You considered my servant Job? What about him? There is no one on earth like him, God says. He is blameless and upright. A man who fears God and shuns evil. I don't know about that. I just am struck. If I can pause right there. That God would know those who are seeking to live righteously and be blameless and honor Him. God knows. God knows and He says, hey, have you considered My servant Job? And what's God doing? Setting setting Job up to be hounded by Satan? No, God's saying, hey, I am glorified through those who I've created and they've chosen to be followers of Me and serve Me. Have you considered My servant Job? Listen to this response. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied, Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the works of his hand so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you. What's Satan say? Yeah, Job. You think Job's a great person? It's a transactional relationship. He serves you because you bless him. You take away all the blessings, everything he has, and then see what he's made of, man. He'll curse you. Wow. Some intense stuff going on in the spiritual realm, maybe over your life or my life, in situations and circumstances that we know nothing of. God says, test him, test him. Satan says, I will. Because he's a phony. He's a phony. In other words, he's he's just doing the things you like, God, because you're there and you're blessing him. The Lord said to Satan, very well then, everything he has is in your power. But on the man himself, do not lay a finger. So God said, had, had it. you can take away whatever he's got. You can take away his wealth, you can take away health, you can take away family, but you cannot lay a finger on taking away his life. So in that situation, Satan goes to work. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now catch this, there's actually several servants that come visit Job. One day when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing nearby, and the Sabians attacked and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. First piece of bad news. Second piece, while he was still speaking, another messenger came And then verse 18, while he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house when suddenly a wind, a mighty wind, swept in from the desert. It collapsed on them. They are dead, and I'm the only one who has escaped to tell you. I don't know about bad news in your life, but I've never had something that intense. for." Messengers in a row. Four aspects of his life. Gone. Completely gone. How would you respond? Especially if a pastor stood up and told you on Thanksgiving weekend. Choose thankful. The Bible doesn't sell you something. Christianity is real. You have a real God. And we have a story here of Job who in the moment of testing had to identify with what he found as the most important thing in all of life. Satan didn't lay a finger on Job. He had a lot of accusations thrown at him. His wife in chapter 2, she couldn't deal with it. You know what she said? Job, just curse God and die. That's how bad it was for her. The rest of Job, if you if you read the story, and, and that which that semester I had went through three specific different kinds of friends that come and try to reason with him and explain, well, this happened because of this happened, all these other kinds of things. What did Job do? Well, we find it in verse twenty. At this, Job got up, tore his robe shaved his head, then fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing now I don't know if that's the same kind of disposition that we find in Psalm 88 but the cries in Psalm 88 are the same kinds of cries that would come from someone like Job in one sense because all was gone all was happening darkness was all that's around what can I merely do now Job turned and he chose to worship realizing naked I came in the world naked I'm going to go But he did not accuse God of any wrongdoing. He sought God. And through the story of Job, we find him time and again resisting the grumble leaders around him. Who said, you need to grumble about this and grumble about that. And he had his own rights talking to God, and he had some of his concerns. He's very transparent. He wasn't, you know, uh, some nice, polished, kind of perfect God believer who didn't, didn't wrestle deeply. In fact, what happens at the end of Job is quite striking if you ever read it. After all the friends, after his wife, after Job crying out to God, God then speaks. And you know what God does at the end of Job? Instead of pontificating on great realities as it relates to uh, who God is, he uses questions. And the questions are rapid fire, 66 in a row. Where were you, Job, when the foundations of the world were created? Where were you, Job, or why would you? And immediately, Job gets put in his place in one sense, and he goes, yeah, you're right. I'm not God. I don't know what's going on. He didn't understand what was happening that Satan said, hey, you know, Job's only following you, God, because of this transactional relationship. You know, he's getting stuff, so he's living for you. But you take it away and he's going to collapse. He's gone. He didn't understand any of that kind of stuff. But you know what Job did? Job stayed with God. Job stayed with God and he stayed with God in the midst of his pain and his darkness. And if you look at the end of Job, Job 42, you find these words. My ears have heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Friends, in the darkness, you can experience God's grace. In the darkness, you and I can grab a hold of things of God that we could have never grabbed a hold of other places. He had heard of God. Now he began to see God. And then the epilogue at the end talks about what happens. After Job had prayed for his friends, and he prayed for his friends who were telling him that he needed to walk away from God, the Lord restored his fortunes and gave him twice as much as he had before. All of his brothers and sisters and everyone who had known him before came and ate with him in his house. They comforted and consoled him from all the trouble the Lord had brought on him and each one gave him a piece of silver and gold ring. The Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the former part. He ended up having then 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 donkeys. And he also had another seven sons and three daughters. After this, Job lived. 140 years, he saw his children and their children to the fourth generation, and so Job died an old man full of years. Thus, you have the story of Job. If I can take, as we close, the story of Job and merge it with Psalm 88, I want to challenge you in a couple places as you choose thankfulness this week, in spite of darkness that may be in your life or a friend or a family member you're going to try to encourage and counsel. And it's this. Darkness brings God's grace by moving us from a transactional relationship to one of maturity and depth when we choose to love and serve Him for who He is rather than for what He does for us. Your darkness is going to move you into some depth of grace and strengthen you to become a more devoted and well-rounded follower of Jesus Christ, a mature person who has depth, who chooses to love God and serve God for who he is rather than for what he does. Friends, if you stay on the Christian path, serving and loving God, Only because of what he's doing for you, you will find yourself in a dark place someday. But if you can move to maturity and choose to love God and serve God because of who he is, no matter what happens, then you will find the peace of God that passes all understanding that gives you interior life in spite of exterior darkness and circumstances. How many people have you come across? Hopefully you've come across a few. I know I have. When you're like, they have no reason to be thankful. They have no reason. And it's not that they're putting on the giddy Jesus smile. Everything's fine. I'm all dressed up. I'm in church. I'm okay. But you sense something about them of depth because they've pushed past the circumstantial stuff and grabbed a hold of the living God who created them, who will one day sustain them into eternity and they love Him for who He is, not for the circumstances of what's going on in their life. That is how you can not only find grace in darkness, but how you can become a great person in the midst of darkness. God's at work. He was at work in Job's life. He can be at work in your life and in mind, So that's the first thing I want to say. The second thing is this. Feelings do not always paint a picture of reality. When a Christian feels abandoned by God, it is subjective, never objective. He is with us. He is for us. He is not and will not walk away from us. See, your feelings of abandonment and darkness are merely subjective in the ultimate reality. The objective reality is God's presence is still there. And Job found that out. Here's the psalmist that sought to try to find that out. And if you are finding yourself ebbing and flowing by feelings, you're headed to a dark place. But if you can grab a hold of objective reality, then you will find strength. Here's the reality. Psalm 88 was written by... Uh, uh, a psalmist named Heman. Now, who was Heman? Heman was the music and worship director for David. And here's Heman. We don't know what's going on, but he thinks he's dying. He's lost all of his friends. Darkness is his only friend, and he's crying out. But here we are, 2,500 years later, looking at his words to give us encouragement and hope. The Psalms are known, whether as a believers or non-believers, they're known historically in literature as some of the greatest works of uh, liturgy and art are the Psalms and the prayers. And here is his crying out to the Lord, recorded through all this. He may have had subjective feelings at the time of abandonment, but God was using that pain, using that darkness to craft for him words that could be shared to us. A dead-end Psalm, In one sense, it seems that way. My only friend is darkness. But we find consolation and hope because we have a God who's not selling us something. There's realness. He'll take your pain, your friend's pain, your family's pain, and He'll show Himself as true. Friend, the only person who experienced ultimately objective darkness that's believed is Jesus Christ Himself. When He took upon our sins, it says God turned from us. We don't fully understand that, but in that moment of the cross, Jesus experienced darkness, but He stayed true in His faithfulness to the love of the Father. He died on the cross for your sins, for my sins, so that we can have not only the forgiveness of our sins, but the power over sin in our life. And then He raised Him from the grave, showing by which death no longer has mastery over you. Even if you are to be dead and you want to say, hey, like the psalmist says, I want to praise you, but I keep dead people can't praise you. Friends, in Christ who faced the ultimate objective darkness and broke the chains of Satan, rose from the grave, you have That future hope you will praise even if it's a passing through death. These are big realities, friends. It's not cheerleading for me this morning. I struggle with Christians who struggle. I do. If they don't press through and find God's grace and His power and His realness, in an intimate, deep, personal relationship with Him. Choose. Thankful. Yesterday, after men's group, there's a few men and some other friends of an individual who attends this church, was moving. And uh, so a group got together to help her and her son move. She was moving out of a very nice ranch home that had been built for her and her husband. And things didn't go well after they moved in. And so we, as a body of people, were trying to help her move from her nice home that had accommodations for some physical conditions that she has. And she's moving into a 700-square-foot apartment. I walked in her home to spend a moment of prayer and circle up, and some others did. And she went to tears. And she went to tears because I know all that's moving on in her life and some of the pain. I would have a hard time choosing thankful. But as we prayed, I was led to pray this way. We looked around the home and wasn't as much furniture as I thought. She said, "Well, I've sold it off some of it cuz I can't have it where where I'm moving." And uh I prayed knowing that there was a brokenness in the marriage. There was great disappointment and commendations. There was ongoing health concerns. And there was uncertainty and fear of the future. And as I prayed, I just tried to imagine everything being boxed up and moved away. Some stuff sold. But it was with great hope that I was able to pray. God, you've not been sold off. You're not going away. You're not being left behind. You are going with our friend to where she will abide. Lord, be with her. May your presence be rich with her in this darkness. May we be friends, but may this darkness move to light as she embraces your Emmanuel, God with us, presence. Are you there this morning? Pray with me. Lord, I ask in these moments that you would be faithful and true to any individual who is here going through pain or somebody that's online. Lord, that is in pain and in darkness and can so identify with the cries of the psalmist. Lord, may you take that cry and may you encourage them to let it flow. But Lord, as it flows, may it not be tampered down or shut off until they are able to walk through the valley of darkness and choose thankfulness because your presence is with them. And may they move from a transactional relationship to one of greater maturity and depth because of the pain that's been brought into their life or allowed to come in their life. And may they find themselves in this Thanksgiving week embracing You. The hope we have for the future and definitely in eternity, but Lord, the hope that we have that tomorrow You're not going anywhere. You're not leaving. You are there with us. Lord, may that hope of Your greatness, Your immutable unchangingness, changing presence, may that hope be felt in a tangible way as we again choose thankful this day. God's people said, Amen. Thank you for being on that journey. My wife and I wish you a great Thanksgiving week. May you take the time to do your homework and express to Jesus the goodness Not just of what he's done, because sometimes there's not much, but of who he is. God bless. We'll see you next week.